So if you're joining with us for the first time this morning, we have been in a series together looking at the magisterial ethical vision that is given to us by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And this morning in this, the most famous of sermons, we come to the most famous of prayers. We're going to be looking together at the Lord's Prayer. Now, scholars note that uh, the Lord's Prayer actually sits at the structural center of the Sermon on the Mount. And so many have noted that the Sermon on the Mount falls uh, down in a chiastic structure. And a chiastic structure is one in which uh, the first half mirrors the second half. And so you can see this, how the beginning actually mirrors the end, the blessings in the beginning mirror the warnings in the end, the law, statement about the law and the prophets at the beginning is mirrored by a statement about the law and the prophets at the end. And if you carry this structure all the way through, at the center you find the Lord's Prayer. And actually, if you count the number of words in the Greek uh, New Testament uh, that stand before the Lord's Prayer, it is actually equal to the number of words that stand after the Lord's Prayer. And so the author is trying to set this prayer right in the structural center of this prayer. Now, I don't think he's simply showing us a neat literary device. I think that he's actually showing us something about the ethical life. And I think what Jesus is teaching us here is that at the very center of the ethical life is a deep and rich interior life with God. In other words, prayer and ethics go hand in hand. Jesus is saying that our life in the world is the overflow of a deep and a rich life with God. Now, this isn't just something that Jesus teaches. This is something Jesus models. Uh, one of the things that the biographers of Jesus, the four Gospels, note again and again is the prayer life of Jesus. Always, everywhere, uh, they, they're talking to us about Jesus in prayer. And so you find uh, Jesus in prayer in the face of crisis and Jesus in prayer before the crack of dawn, in prayer through the night, in prayer before making major decisions, in prayer for his friends, in prayer for his enemies, in prayer in the garden, in prayer in the wilderness, in prayer on the cross. Always, everywhere, we find Jesus in prayer. And I think what Jesus is demonstrating before us as we read the Gospels and see his prayer life is he showing us, look, you want to know what the kingdom of heaven kind of life is like? It's this. It is a life that is rich in prayer. In other words, if you are a follower of Jesus, you will learn to pray like Jesus. Uh, Jesus put it like this. He said that every disciple, when he is fully trained, will become like his teacher. In other words, if you follow Jesus, if you're a disciple of Jesus, you will learn to pray like Jesus. Now, this immediately poses a dilemma. Because who among us prays like that? Uh, a study of evangelicals was done uh, several years back but it revealed that actually of these evangelical leaders that were surveyed, on average, they prayed for less than five minutes a day. And I think a lot of us have problems with prayer. We have intellectual problems. Many of you are thinkers, and you believe in the sovereignty of God, 
and you think, if God controls everything that's going to happen, then what's the purpose of praying anyway? I mean, does prayer actually accomplish anything? Some of you have personal problems. Some of you long for a prodigal to come home, and you've prayed, and the prodigal has not come home. Some of you are lonely, and you've longed for a spouse, and you've prayed, but God has not given you a spouse. Some of you, you you long to be healed, and you've prayed, and you've not been healed, and you think prayer doesn't really work, or maybe it works for others, but it just doesn't seem to work for me. Am I doing something wrong? Is there some key that I've missed? And of course, some of us in the room are doers, and you you measure the value of a day by how much you got done. And some of you are so aggressive about this that if you have a to-do list and you're checking items off your to-do list and something was not on the list that you accomplished, you write it down and you check it off the list just to make sure that it's noted. Anyone in the room that OCD? And quite frankly, if you are a doer, it just feels like prayer isn't accomplishing anything. It feels almost boring if you're kind of that frenetic uh, energy kind of person. And then, of course, there's a perpetual problem of distractions when we do take time and pray. You know, we live in an age of multimedia, and we have text messaging, and emails, and Instagram, and Facebook, and Twitter, and Pinterest, and YouTube, and gaming, and Netflix, and who among us can settle our mind for 30 seconds to focus on prayer? I relate well to that old poet, uh, John Donne, when he wrote this. I love this. He said, uh, this is from the 17th century. I think this guy didn't know anything. I mean, he, he had no idea how bad the distractions were going to get. But look what he says. He says, I throw myself down in my chamber, and I call in and invite God and his angels thither. And when they are there, I neglect God and his angels for the noise of a fly, for the rattling of a coach, for the whining of a door, a memory of yesterday's pleasures, a fear of tomorrow's dangers, a straw under my knee, a noise in mine ear, a light in mine eye, and anything, a nothing, a fancy, a shimmer in my brain troubles me in prayer. Can anyone here relate to that at all? It's like you get down to pray and within five seconds you're thinking about bacon. You know, you're like, Lord, I just pray. I wonder what I'm going to have for breakfast. Ooh, I love bacon. I think I'll have bacon. I wonder what kind of bacon I'll have. But it's hard to focus in prayer, isn't it? Does anybody else in the room find prayer difficult? So I want you just to turn to your neighbor right now and say, neighbor, go ahead. Prayer is hard. Now turn to your other neighbor and say, neighbor, Jesus gives us help. So in our text... Actually, Jesus gives us a gift. He knows that we are weak. He knows that we struggle. And so he teaches us how to pray. And he's incredibly helpful in this text. You know, uh, listening to Jesus teach you how to pray is like looking to Warren Buffett to teach you how to manage your money in the market. I mean, why wouldn't you listen to that kind of advice? Here is the most centered human being in the, in the presence of God, in the face of the world, the one who's, who's, who's lived before the face of God his, for all of eternity past, actually, the eternal son, and he's teaching you and me how to do it. He's teaching us how to pray in this 
text. Now, of course, the Lord's Prayer, it is, uh, it is shallow enough for the child to wade his feet in, and it's also deep enough for an elephant to drown in. And what we're going to do today is we're just going to do a flyover. I hope at some point in my uh, time here with you all uh, to actually spend, you know, several weeks going through the Lord's Prayer, but there's some value in looking at the prayer as a whole. And so we want to do that uh, today. And I just want to draw to your attention four things about what Jesus says about prayer. Jesus is going to talk to us, number one, about a place, number two, about a pattern, number three, about petitions, and number four, he's going to show us the most important word when it comes to prayer. And so let's note first what Jesus says about a place. Look down at your uh, Bible, if you have one, if you don't, or, you know, steal the person's Bible next to you, and you can take that Bible home with you. Look at what it says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, says Jesus, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door. And pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Now, what's interesting is that oftentimes in the New Testament, when you see a command uh, with, the, with the word you in it, oftentimes, even though it's hidden in the Greek, actually, or it's hidden in our English Bibles, in the Greek, the you is often in the plural, as in you all. And uh, I think it, what it's in, in the South is that all y'all... Is that everyone? Or is you all everyone? And then there's like a singular one, right? Yeah, whatever. Okay, we're, we're in Southern California. We don't. <laughs> but oftentimes the you is in the plural. What's, what's interesting is the you here is in the singular. Jesus is talking to you and me as individuals. And he says, and when you individually pray, Here's what he says. He says, go into your secret place. Go find a place to be with God. The spiritual life is like film. It develops in the dark. You are who you are when no one else is watching. When you are by yourself, where does your mind and your heart and your desires go? This is the truest indicator of who you are. It's a truest indicator of your character. And what Jesus is showing us here is he's saying, look, yeah, there's a lot of stuff you do in public as a follower of Jesus. God knows this. I mean, we're called to come together as the church and to sing together and to pray together. And sometimes we do that corporately. We confess sin together and we do prayers together. And you get in prayer groups and you pray out loud together and you sing songs and lift your hands together. And there's stuff we do in public. But what Jesus is saying is that what you do in private is really the foundation. It's the root of the fruit that comes out in public. Or you could put it like this. Anybody seen one of these? You know, it's an iceberg. And there is what's above the surface that you can see. But below the surface, there's a much larger world. And what Jesus is teaching us here is that our public life, 
the things we do as Christians, kind of our religious duties or whatever that are done in public, need to find support in a foundation that's below the surface. And that world below the surface is cultivated when you spend time alone with God. So how are you doing? Are you taking time to be holy? Taking time to be with God? You know, uh, I recently listened to a podcast. The name of the podcast is called uh, The Art of Manliness, which is awesome, isn't it? And there is an art to manliness. I've got it figured out. If you want to know about that art, gentlemen, you can come talk to me afterwards. Um, but uh, the, 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 on this podcast, they were interviewing this guy who wrote a book called Deep Work. And the thesis of this book is that in kind of our modern age that is uh, where, where we now have a whole nother like appendage to our body, it's called the iPhone or your smartphone or whatever, and where most of us walk around every day with access to the World Wide Web and we're constantly being distracted, we're being pinged and dinged and ringed and it's like you can't get away from it all the time. He said that, that this way of life is actually destroying how our brains function. And uh, because you're constantly being stimulated by this, that, and the other thing, it's like it's doing something to your brain. And he says the net effect is it's destroying our ability to do deep work. And his thesis actually is interesting because he says that in a knowledge economy, which is what we live in, he says what's going to be an increasingly valuable commodity are people who know how to do deep work. People who can spend time focusing for three, four hours at a time and don't always feel like, anybody else work like this? <laughs> and I think what he says about work is actually true for prayer. Our way in which we engage with technology is destroying our ability to actually do deep prayer, to spend focused time with God. And so here's what I want to encourage you to do. You know, and this is something I've been trying during this Lenten season. You know, during Lent, we were encouraging many of you to put something off and then to put something on. Well, one of the things I put off this Lent was being accessible on my phone and email and texting, uh, except for the hours of 1 p.m. to 5 p.m. And so if I haven't gotten back to you, that's why. It's wonderful. <laughs> But, but what I'm trying to do is actually have a space in the morning where there's several hours where I'm not distracted by other things so that I can cultivate deep prayer and deep work. And then, of course, I've put that off in the evenings, too, so that I can develop deep family. Now, I'll be honest with you, it's, it's a little rough. It's hard. I'm, I'm, I'm working at it. But this is what I'd commend to you, is take time alone Create a space, have a place that is undistracted where you can spend time with God and you can cultivate your relationship with him. Your soul is anemic without the presence of God. And you need to take time to be in his presence. This is the wellspring out of which a, a life well lived in the world flows. So Jesus, number one, he directs us to a place. He says, find a place. But then secondly, I want you to note that Jesus gives us a pattern. Jesus gives us a pattern. And look at what it says in verse 7. 
He says, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need of before you ask Him. So he says, instead of rambling on and on and on, he says, pray like this. And then he gives us words. Now, this is fascinating because I can remember the very first time I ever prayed out loud in a group. Anybody here ever have kind of like a a nightmare memory of that? Some of you are afraid to pray in public. You don't like it? And I can remember being a, a, a... kid, you know, and I was 16 years old, and um, my youth pastor said, so we're all going to go in a circle, and each one of you are going to pray, and so Josh, you're going to start, and I'm like, whoa, 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 like, I don't know what to say, you know, I felt all awkward and uncomfortable, and I was worried about what everyone's going to think about me, and he said, brother, brother, don't worry, just pray whatever is on your heart. And I was 16 years old, and I looked down into my heart, and I found this big, empty, vacuous space. Isn't it interesting? Jesus doesn't say, just go pray whatever is on your heart. Now, that's not bad advice. It's not terrible advice. There are worse things you could do, like not pray at all. But instead of saying, pray what's on your heart, Jesus gives us words. He says, pray like this, our Father in heaven. Let's say it together. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now stop there. Jesus, of course, is giving us a, pray, a prayer that we can, we can recite verbatim. We can say corporately. Uh, We can use it privately in our prayer times when we're walking uh, to work or to school or whatever. But Jesus here is giving us more than words. Jesus in the Lord's Prayer is giving us a pattern. He's giving us a pattern. Now, it's interesting. In the first century, it was actually very common for a rabbi to give to his, t- his students a prayer that they could recite that would reflect the values and the priorities of their rabbi. And so you remember when uh, the disciples walked up to Jesus and they said, Jesus, teach us how to pray as John taught his disciples. You see, John had given his disciples a prayer, like other rabbis had given their disciples a prayer, and now the disciples of Jesus say, Jesus, give us a prayer. And Jesus gives them a prayer that's intended to to reflect the values and the priorities of Jesus. In the same way that when you are in elementary school, one of the things that most, most kids learn, I don't know if they're still teaching their kids this in um, elementary school. Uh, my kids were homeschooled, so I think it was like they were like 16 before they learned this, but it was the Pledge of Allegiance. Yeah, they, so anyway, but you, 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 you hand the Pledge of Allegiance over to a school, a school room of children. Why? Well, it is to, by the constant recitation of the pledge, it instills, it inscribes on their heart something of the values and the priorities of America. 
And so too with this prayer, Jesus hands this prayer over to us so that by its constant reflection and recitation, it inscribes upon us the values and the priorities of God's kingdom. And in this way, this prayer is also intended to shape the priorities of our own praying. Jesus is trying to actually fashion and shape our prayers so that they reflect the things that he cares about because there's a lot of things you care about, the things that are on your list that might not be on God's list. Or maybe they're on his list, but they don't, they don't, they're not at the same place on his list. They're at like the top of your list and they're down like an eighth or ninth place on his list. Are you tracking with me? So Jesus is actually giving us this prayer in order to inscribe upon us his own values and priorities so that it shapes and fashions our own praying. Uh, There's a Christian ethicist named Stanley Hauerwas who said something that I think really um, captures uh, this this point that I'm getting at here. And um, so Stanley Hauerwas wrote an essay on education in America, and it was kind of critical of... um, uh, he he kind of took aim at uh, the very popular idea that the role of teachers is to get kids to make up their own minds. And here's what he says. He says, I have elsewhere attacked the current notion that colleges and universities should be about the Socratic function of allowing students to, quote, make up their own minds. This assumption, celebrated in the movie The Dead Poet Society, anybody here seen The Dead Poet Society? It's like an inspiring movie, you know? Whose protagonist is a teacher who intends above all to help students make up their own minds. My own view, however, is that, the con- is that that concept of education is completely corrupt since most students don't have minds worth making up. Now, before you laugh at them, you probably don't have a mind worth making up either. But his point is that students need to be formed in a community of character before they have minds worth making up. You need to fill your mind with good thinkers and good writers and good philosophers and critical thinkers and theologians and thought leaders. And and you need to be in a community of people who live well and who do the right thing. And in that community, you start to have a mind that is able to think properly and make it up up your your mind in in a way that's good. Does that make sense? And I think Jesus is doing something similar with this prayer. He's saying, look, if you want to have prayers worth praying, as it were, then Have them shaped and formed by this prayer. This is a pattern I'm giving you. Now, let's dig a little bit deeper into this pattern, though, and let's move from the pattern uh, to the petitions and kind of like drill down. So we've seen, number one, the place. We've seen, number two, the pattern. And number three, let's talk together about the petitions. So the Lord's Prayer, interestingly, uh, can be divided into two halves. The first half, note well, deals with you and your, your name and your kingdom and your will, Lord God. The second half deals with us and our. Give us this day, forgive us as we forgive those who sin against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Do you see the rhythm in this prayer? 
It's a prayer that moves from God and His name and His kingdom and His will to you and your needs and your weaknesses and your struggles. But it begins with God. And this is important for us to recognize because we live in a time and a place where our prayers are oftentimes caught up with our own self-centered needs and interests. And I think a lot of us actually treat God like he's some great big cosmic genie. You guys, um, I don't know if you know this, but... Uh, There's actually uh, a new Aladdin coming out, a live-action Aladdin, and Will Smith is playing Aladdin. Oh, yeah. Come on, Will Smith. It's going to be good. There was somebody, though, who um, was commenting on, uh, like, a Twitter feed, a great place to have your mind formed, Twitter. And... um, But they commented this. They said, when I was six, I had a nightmare about King Ramesses from... Courage the Cowardly Dog. So I don't know, some movie, he had this nightmare. He said, that was the scariest thing in my life that I'd seen up until I saw Will Smith as the genie. (laughs) But what, what what do you do with the genie? Well, you rub the bottle, the genie comes out, and the genie comes to grant you your wishes. And you have this powerful being that's there to help you achieve your dreams and your goals. In fact, uh, it's captured very well, I think, in um, that great song from Aladdin, You Ain't Never Had a Friend Like This. You ain't never had a friend like this. Come on. Anyway, uh, there's this, this is great, great line that says, You got some power in your corner now, some heavy ammunition in your camp. You got some punch, pizzazz, yahoo, and how. See, all you got to do is rub the lamp and say, Mr. Aladdin, and I'll say, Mr. Aladdin, sir, what will your pleasure be? Let me take your order, jot it down. You ain't never had a friend like me. Life is your restaurant, and I'm the maitre d'. Come on, whisper what it is you want. You ain't never had a friend like me. Now, I don't think it, most of us wouldn't envision God particularly like a blue Will Smith. But I think sometimes we approach God as if he's a cosmic genie whose role is to help us achieve the American dream. And so we go to God to help us win our wars. We go to God to get a raise. We go to God to get a promotion. We go to God, please God, let the Dodgers win. Let the Lakers win. You know, we go to God for all kinds of things that we want. We all want God on our side, but the real issue in the Lord's Prayer is not whether or not God is on your side. The question is, is are you on God's side? Are you captivated with this longing, with this desire to see God's name magnified. His kingdom break into this world, the healing, justice, bringing peaceable reign of God that makes things new. Are you longing to see that break out on earth even as it is in heaven? Or are you just hoping that God makes your life a little bit better? So Jesus is saying, look, look, look around, look around. All around us, we see a world where God's name is disrespected and dishonored and dismissed. 
And he says, cry out that God's name would be glorified and magnified and sanctified. And we look around at the world and we see other wills and other more destructive, dehumanizing kingdoms having their way all over the globe. And we cry out, God, may your peaceable, justice-bringing kingdom come in at last. May your kingdom come and may your will be done on earth even as it is in heaven. And after moving from God and praying God's kingdom forward, we turn to our needs. Your needs matter to God. And so he says, pray, give us this day our daily bread. Now, in the first century, that meant a lot to the people that prayed those words because many of them, unlike us, mostly middle-class Americans, actually were not always sure where their daily bread would come from. I have this um, picture etched in my memory from a trip I took to a little country in West Africa called Burkina Faso. And I remember walking into uh, the capital city there, Ouagadougou. It's a great name for a city, Ouagadougou. I love it. And it's the third poorest country in the world. And we went there because there was a, a group of African pastors that were subsistence farmers, and because they hadn't received uh, rains, uh, their crops had failed, and they were unable to feed their families. And so we went over there to buy some grain and then to deliver it to the pastors. And I have this memory of walking into the marketplace and purchasing grain and setting the grain on a truck to take it to pastors who didn't know whether or not they'd be able to feed their families. And little bits of grain actually dropped out of these bags and fell into the dirt. And the picture that's etched in my head is of this lady with a little baby strapped to her back, getting down in the dirt and picking up little bits of grain to put something together to feed her children. And maybe for us who live in America in the 21st century, our prayer maybe isn't so much give us this day our daily bread, but it's God open my hands that I might share the bread that you have given me in great abundance with those around me. Now while daily bread is not necessarily a first world problem, the need for forgiveness is. And so he moves on and he says, forgive us our debts. You have a great debt with God. And then he says, and trials and temptations are, we all are tempted to go on journeys that take us away from God. And so Jesus says, pray regularly, God, I am weak, I am fragile, I don't know what I'm capable of. Lead me not into my worst path that I would take, but deliver me from evil. Now, it's interesting, I think in a lot of our um, uh, imaginations, you know, even when you're reciting this prayer, you, you, you go, you know, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil for what? Do you remember how? Let's say it together. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. What's interesting is that almost certainly was not in the original text. Instead of inserting that at the end, look at the, the nice surprise Jesus gives us. He gives a little riff on verse 12. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And he says this. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. 
But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will not forgive you. He's actually, again, trying to tie together ethics and our life with God. And if you have experienced the generosity and the grace of God that has been lavished upon you for nothing that you have contributed to the equation, how could you not possibly be a conduit of God's grace and forgiveness out into the world towards others? Now, I know, I know that forgiveness is hard for many of us, especially if we've been deeply wounded. But that's why Jesus says, so keep praying, lead us not into temptation, but deliver me from evil, from my own bitterness, from my own hatreds, from my desire for vengeance. So Jesus gives us, number one, he gives us a place. He says, find a secret place. And then he gives us this pattern in the Lord's Prayer. And then he gives us these petitions that are God-centered and then move to our needs. But the last thing I want to draw to your attention is arguably the most important word in this prayer. You know, if you stop and think about it, prayer is a pretty daunting thing. I mean, to think to stumble in the presence of infinite power and infinite being and infinite beauty and infinite holiness, that eternal ocean of existence upon whose self depends everything that is, to just stumble into his presence and to begin talking. I mean, how can we do that? I mean, think about it. You and I, or at least I, I can get tongue-tied when I start talking in the presence of somebody who is a finite creature of dust that I find worthy of my respect. You know, have you ever found yourself, you know, you, you engage with somebody who you really want to impress and you really, you know, hope they, they notice you, maybe it's somebody of the opposite sex or maybe you remember this back when you were dating or you wanted to date her or him or whatever and you would go, you know, or maybe you ran into a movie star or a famous athlete or whatever and you like, you, you, you say something and then you stick your foot in your mouth and you feel like an idiot and you're like, how did I say that, you know, and then you're rehearsing the conversation in your head and anybody else in the room? And uh, I can remember this was my experience the first time I called my wife uh, to ask her out on a date. I remember I called her up and I was so nervous. I was practically shaking. And I call her up and I'm like, hi, would you like to go on a date with me? You know, and she said, uh, let me check my calendar. <laughs> and I was like, you know, and then I hung up, you know, and I was still shaking, you know. We get tongue-tied, we get nervous, we're awkward and uncomfortable in the presence of finite creatures of dust. How are you going to do when you step into the presence of the true and the living God? Annie Dillard put it like this. She said, on the whole, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible of the conditions. Do you know what the catacombs were? The catacombs were basically the tombs that were under the earth that the Christians would go hide in because their lives were under threat and they were going to get thrown to the lions. She says, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently aware of the conditions. 
Does anyone have the foggiest idea of what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or, as I suspect, does none of us believe a word of it? It is madness to be wearing ladies' hats when we come to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense. Or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. Do you know what you are doing when you come before the presence of the true and the living God? I mean, in his presence, mountains shake and thunders roar. In his presence, the majestic, angelic seraphim cover their eyes and they do not see shouting day and night, holy, 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 Lord God of power and might. In his presence, even righteous Isaiah says, I am undone. And St. Peter says, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. And the apostle John falls at his feet as one dead. I mean, we are tongue-tied in the presence of impressive but finite human creatures of dust. What are you going to say when you stumble into the presence of infinite holiness and majesty? Jesus says, say, Father. Jesus says, say, Father. You know, that title, Father, it is the title that Jesus uses when he prays all throughout the Gospels. Everywhere, every time, every place you read the prayers of Jesus, he uses that word, Father. Now, this makes sense on the lips of Jesus, doesn't it? Because Jesus has existed for all eternity past as the eternal Son of God. Always, for all of eternity, living in unmitigated, unbroken, joyful communion and fellowship with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. The eternal God existing as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That eternal dance of love that we call God. And so it makes sense that Jesus would say, my father, but you, when you walk into the presence of infinite holiness and majesty, you know, there's this moment in Jesus's life where he ascends up a mountain, up a hill. And he goes with Peter, James, and John. And on this hill and on this mountain, he is transfigured. It's like he becomes this human light bulb. And it's almost as if in that moment they are witnessing the divine glory that has been in existence from all eternity past. And as Jesus is transfigured before the disciples, the Father speaks in this booming, terrifying voice. He says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. This is my beloved son. The disciples are stunned. And then they all travel down the mountain again. And then Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem. 
And while he's in Jerusalem, Jesus takes another hike up another hill, this time with an old rugged cross that he's carrying. And Jesus is crucified on the mount called Calvary. And as Jesus is suffering and dying on the mount called Calvary, Jesus, who all of his life has called out to his father, my father, my father, now on the cross, cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that moment, the eternal son of the father entered into human sin and human brokenness in your place and my place that we deserve, and he drank to the dregs, the full cup of utter God-forsakenness. He was cast off from God as one who was utterly forsaken and rejected so that you and I, who because of our sin are cast off from God, can actually be brought back and we can take the place of God's son. And God can call us sons and daughters of God. Friends, this is the best of what we have to talk about as Christians. This is the good news. God the Son has entered into humanity, entered into God-forsakenness. He's taken a, far, a long journey in a far country of utter God-forsakenness to put us on his back and take us back home and call us sons and daughters of God. And this is prayer. It's the invitation to enjoy the gift of being a child of God. To enjoy the gift of being a part of the kingdom of God and of the family of God. So have you found a place? Are you enjoying the life that Jesus has given you, that he came to give you?